what's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you are watching The Aftershock, our show where we bring you the latest and greatest in the world of Web3 every single Wednesday here on Cryptocurrent. Now, you could be joining us on YouTube. You could be joining us on a podcast platform of your choosing. And in either case, today we have a brand new intro for you. So we've been listening to your advice back home. You wanted a shorter intro. We're here to deliver. So as always on this show, not only are we delivering to you our precious and wonderful audience member who we cater to it at any length. We also have Richard Carthon with us. Richard, how are you doing today? What's up, everybody? Um, as, as Steve just called out, it's a really, really cool shortened video. Definitely go and check it out. But I'm doing well. I mean, we got Ethereum that touched above 2000 again. We got Bitcoin that touched back above 25,000. Uh, 25, they both come back down a little bit, but all the same people are getting excited. Uh, we have a, a market cap that got above 1.2 trillion. It still it went back down a little bit, but all the same, people are starting to pay attention. People are getting excited about this E2.0 merger. There's several other things that we're going to uncover in today's messaging, but we've been talking so much bearishness for so long, it's good to see some green. And it's uh, bringing a lot of uh, great excitement for what's to come. But how are you doing? You know, man, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I started up on a trend that I have been very hesitant and I've been pushing back on a lot um, across the last week. And that's been the free mint meta. I figured now that we're at the end of it, I might as well chime in and do a little bit of it myself. So I've been minting a couple of free mint projects, just having a little bit of fun in the NFT space. But to your point, I think that things are starting to get a little bit more optimistic out there across the rest of the cryptoverse. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. There's a lot to cover today on today's show. So we're going to dive right in right now. This is, of course, our news program. The Aftershock. So the top of the Web3 lightning round today, we are, of course, going to talk a little bit about ETH 2.0. Now, ETH 2.0 and the final official date of the merge only comes after the very final testnet does its merge. So that final testnet, of course, was the Gorley testnet over on Ethereum's test networks. Um, it successfully completed the merge. There was no drama. It went as planned. And we are now officially set for a merge. And that is approximately going to take place between September 15th to September 20th. And that is directly from the mouth of the one and only Vitalik Buterin. But, and this is the big but, um, a lot of people are getting really concerned because the miners are a little upset and they're threatening to do an ETH POW fork. Now, what does that mean, Richard? So if they're going to fork, they're basically going to fork off of the blockchain that is Ethereum and kind of make its own blockchain uh, at, after a certain point and have it be its own thing. So uh, there's been several forks and other thing. Like if you look at uh, Bitcoin Cash, if you look at uh, even BSG or BSV, there's, there's been several forks and some major uh, different cryptos out there. However, good luck. Um, I'm going to start there. So the real concern about this is the fact that one of the biggest reasons they wanted to do this merge is to make the network more efficient and move it over to proof of stake. Now, that is a consensus mechanism. Now, we've defined that at length on this show in the past, so I'm going to assume those of you that are at home, you're a little bit familiar with pr what proof of work is and what proof of stake is. But what you may not be familiar with is the fact that in the past, when Ethereum did a major upgrade, they also upgraded and there was a hard fork. That's what gave birth to Ethereum Classic. With this new hard fork, 
they're trying to explicitly keep proof of work around because the miners are pissed off that they're no longer going to be able to make money on all of those transaction fees on network. What makes this really interesting, Rich, is that the ETH POW fork could basically open up the door to um, duplicitous assets, meaning that all of the assets that are currently on network would get a duplicate on the ETH POW network. And you could basically claim one for one tokens to carry over onto the ETH POW network. And technically speaking, you could pull liquidity out of the market um, that would not be equivalent on both sides if you were to look at it as two separate ledgers. Yeah, there's concern about it. But to me, the bigger thing here is you're literally just talking about people who are greedy. Yeah, you're dealing with greed. And also, ultimately, people have been looking forward to this ETH 2.0 merger forever. Proof of stake is going to help it be a lot cheaper, uh, more efficient, and ultimately driving things forward. Uh, people are trying to hold on, trying to make as much money as they can. Going back to greed, it, you know. Again, good luck to them. I don't, I don't know why people would choose to keep paying high fees and paying high gas fees on the old model. Uh, they're probably going to be looking to move towards uh, ETH 2.0. So again, good luck. And uh, it's crazy that I've. We keep talking about this ETH 2.0 merge and how long it's been with them trying to make this happen. And like, it's so close. Like, uh, we are less than a month away from this potentially going live. And that's extremely exciting. Yeah, what grinds my gears about this is just the fact that you've got the miners. I don't know how to say this. Let's just say um, witching and moaning, because I swore on last week's show, I'm not going to do it on this week's show. Um, They're witching and moaning over basically their own lack of preparedness. And that's really the core of this, right? They've known that this merge was coming. They've known that proof of stake was coming. They could have taken the time and put the assets toward shifting their model so they could be node operators and they could therefore be validators on the new proof of stake network. They have completely dropped the ball on this. And what's their um, big reconciliation they want to fork the network, and I don't agree with it. I think it's the wrong move, and ultimately, it's going to keep proof of work on Ethereum's um, hard forked platform alive. And we don't want that, especially if you're, you know, somebody that cares about the environment. Long term, proof of stake is a lot more green. So uh, we'll have to see how this one f- further develops in the middle of September, and we'll keep you posted. Uh, but it's definitely an interesting one to top the show today. The next piece is going to directly affect Richard. So the SEC and the CFTC have apparently come together and proposed a new requirement that would require private funds to disclose their crypto holdings. Before today, only publicly traded funds and um, larger uh, trusts were required to disclose assets. At this time, now you're starting to see this idea that venture funds and smaller um, private funds and like even like family offices are going to be required to disclose their crypto holdings. Richard, because you operate some funds, how do you feel about this story? It's a really interesting one to me. It is interesting. And it's why is it, why are the rules having to change just because you're dealing with the world of crypto? Um, Most of your funds that you're dealing with, you're dealing with, having to set up a, an official fund, you're dealing with accredited investors. So they know what they're signing up for. They know what they're, they're dealing with. 
where I think something like this would make sense is if you're dealing with, you know, unaccredited investors and you're trying to deal with any and all money, like, sure. But this just doesn't make sense to, to have these kind of rules put in place other than just targeting crypto. It, it's nothing else than just straight away saying, I'm going after you, crypto. Um, because there's already rules and regulations put in place that crypto compliant uh, funds are already having to um, abide by. So this just feels like overkill. Yeah, it definitely does. I think it's an overreach by the government on this one specifically. And it's mostly because there are all these family offices and private funds out there that all own regular assets, right? Stocks, bonds, um, different other equities that exist out there. And this is just very simply saying, like, we don't give a shit what you own in that because we know that you're already complying. We just simply want more visibility into what you own because we want to tax you more. So look, whichever way you boil this one down, um, it is definitely interesting to see that they're trying to hold crypto to a different standard than the rest of the financial market. But let's move into this next one. Really messed up story, right? You thought the government overreach was a big deal. Let me tell you something. MailChimp comes up and says, we're going to rug pull all of the crypto content creators. So they apparently have discontinued services for Masari, Decrypt, and a number of other crypto content creators out there. And this really sucks because MailChimp was like the primary um, newsletter provider and uh, email marketing platform for so many different crypto companies. Legitimate ones. Very legitimate ones, like cryptocurrent. Yeah. Right? How are you responding to this? Because again, this directly impacts us. I'm curious what you think of it because it's a big freaking deal. It is. It's it's brutal too that for a lot of these uh, companies that got rugged, for example, Mazari, um, who went to Twitter to kind of explain what happened, they were as no prior notice given. You know, usually if you're going to be uh, asked to leave off of a um, company's platform, they give you notice, you know, 30 day, 15, five, um, even a day's notice. No, 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 no. They just straight up took them off. Just no notice. You're out of here. I, I, that just, it, man, unless you are truly violating the code of conduct or whatever policies in place and you're a repeat offender. And even if you haven't given a warning and it's just very clear that like, we got to get you out of here to just blanketly do that to some of these companies. It just, it's messed up, man. Yeah, it is definitely messed up. Um, to me, this is a very weird comp. So like, just run with me here for a second. Like, don't make fun of me too soon. But we reported last year on a kind of similar story. And that was when OnlyFans told all of its adult um, content creators that they no longer could put their content on OnlyFans. And it was out of the blue. And all of a sudden, they all had to leave. A whole bunch of different unique platforms for those adult content creators came forward, including some crypto options that were absolutely crypto native. Um, I'm not going to get into which platforms those were, but to me, this feels kind of similar right? It's attacking a very specific part of their business, a certain sector. And it now actually gives a lot of other providers a very key opportunity to go out and attract a lot of the affected crypto content creators. So I personally see the type of situation that 
OnlyFans had with all the adult content creators out there playing out similarly here. Um, just with, let's just say, a more PG atmosphere. Um, so let's go ahead and carry this one forward so that Richard doesn't roast me too hard for bringing that up. Um, our next story comes from the Polkadot Network. Now, on Polkadot, there was one platform that won their parachain auction last year that we were really bullish on, and that was Akala Network. Well, Akala Network had some pretty bad news over the last week, and that was when they were hacked. Their attacker issued an additional 1.2 billion Akala USD, their stablecoin, into their ecosystem and fully liquidated the network. Um, it looks really bad. I think it's pretty unclear right now as to whether or not this attacker was a black hat or a white hat. Uh, but I hope for Akala's sake that it was a white hat. How do you read this one? I read this as very unfortunate and terrible. And also just going back to the core challenges of stable coins that aren't backed by some sort of hard asset. When a vulnerability like this happens, it can wipe out everything. It can just straight up liquidate you out and you're stuck holding the bag after all this hard work, after all of these great things, you can be put in this out, just really unfortunate, huge liquidation event. And this really could disrupt the entire ecosystem that's, that's over there, which is just so sad. Yeah. Troubling to say the least. Um, but let's go ahead and move on past this one so we can get into a pretty uplifting story, right? Cause we've been beating people down with negative stories on what really is a pretty good week. Um, I think that it's unfortunate, but like that's just kind of the way this happens sometimes. Um, so the really positive uplifting piece this week is that MetaMask, the typical um, preferred wallet provider on the Ethereum network, has officially rolled out a set approval for all user protection feature. Now, we've talked about security a number of times on this show. You always need to be very careful and skeptical of different pop-ups that you find online, phishing attempts via email, all of those so, like certain situations. One of those common hacks that's been happening across the last year has been the overuse and subliminal implementation of a set approval for all function. That basically means that when you sign a transaction, you're authorizing the contract that you're interacting with to have access to all of the assets that are in your wallet. They can just drain you immediately. But the problem is, is that not all the time were people seeing that that was actually what was going on in the transaction they were signing. So in this case, now MetaMask has this feature built in where it'll show you in plain English in with all the syntax, are you sure that you want to allow this site to have access to all of your Board API Club NFTs, all of your ERC20 tokens, all of that type of stuff is now built into the plain English language generation that is in MetaMask's user interface. It's huge. It has the potential to save a lot of people a lot of money when it comes to these scams. But be wary. Scammers keep getting smarter and they keep finding new ways around the system. Richard, do you think that this is going to be a game changer for the typical end user or is this just a band-aid for the moment? I think it's going to be a good game changer. I think but ultimately when people are getting messed over and having everything wiped, there has to be some sort of code line that is setting that permission for them to then try to set it up in a way that offsets around MetaMask. I think there's a lot of work that would have to be done to do it. I think they still find a way because scammers are going to scam and they're going to always find a way, right? But this at least 
creates a, a short-term fix to a massive problem for a lot of people who have been getting messed over in this space. So I, I think that MetaMask is starting to put in a, uh, a new way for people to look at when people aren't engaging with their wallets or platforms, a way to protect their end user. It, even though they don't have to, it's all on the end user. They don't want to take any blame or be liable for anything that happens to, to put some things in place to uh, put a user interface that protects your end user to keep them happy. This is where things need to keep heading. This is how we get to that bell or the, that, that hockey stick curve of, of adoption when, you, when users can come on and know that they can be safe with any interactions that they're doing. Now, one other flip side to that, though, is that this could also have the opposite effect happen where now people are like, oh, well, I just click on any link now because MetaMask is going to keep me safe. And I am not saying to do that. You should not keep clicking on uh, any and all links that are there. Please protect yourself. But I'm happy that MetaMask at least did something to help. Yeah, I happen to agree with you. I think that there is a an, an unfortunate like counterculture piece there, right? If you start to give people more convenience, they're going to become more comfortable and they're going to be less skeptical. You need to remain at a healthy level of skepticism in this industry to to really stay safe. Uh, but this is all to tell you that wallets do have the ability to improve. Speaking of which, there's a wallet we need to tell you about that desperately needs to improve. Um, and this is, of course, related back to a story we brought you a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was brought to our attention that we reported a little bit too soon on this. We blamed the hack on Solana. There was a big breach in the Solana network, put a lot of wallets at risk. And it turns out that it actually was on the Slope wallet ecosystem. So Richard, can you give the folks at home a little bit of a word on um, what this really meant for them and what we're planning on doing in the future to make sure that we can keep people um, receiving accurate information? Absolutely. So when we broke this news, it was as it was evolving. Um, Slope actually came out, uh, who this was unfortunately being blamed on, with an official statement the day after this went live on the Wednesday. And I'm just going to read a quick snippet from there. Although there is no conclusive evidence from the auditors to link the Slope vulnerability to the exploit, its very existence put a lot of assets in danger. This is nowhere near the security standard that Slope set out to establish and maintain. We are deeply regretful of these occurrences. Security is paramount to us and our user base is everything. We should have never let this happen. So they kind of speak out of both ends of their mouth to say like, hey, this, there's nothing that points to saying like this is all our fault. But at the same time, too, it doesn't mean that it can't, it, it could be all our fault, right? So um, all that to say, um, as we continue to evolve the news, um, we are going to give you as much as we can. And if there is news that we inaccurately put and someone's able to point that out and give that to us, we're happy to update that. We have no pride here in being completely wrong. We want to give as accurate of information as possible. We're going to do our very best to be right and to do it the majority of the time, but we're not perfect and we're going to do what we can to improve as we go about this process. But if you ever have feedback for us and if you want to call us out on something, we have no problem with you doing that. Please provide evidence and all of that because ultimately we want to report accurate news to you. So uh, appreciate the feedback. We want to make sure that we made this particular article correct. And uh, yeah, sorry to hear about um, uh, the, the Slope wallet. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate. And look, I want to make sure that our audience at home really, really hears that. Um, we are 100% on your side and we want it to be a dialogue. If you have things that you want to make sure that we are aware of, let us know, right? Let us know that we need to be um, having like a correction corner um, on the show and we'll take the time to make sure that we reverse course and inform the rest of the audience about what is actually going on, what is real, what is not. Um, so we're super mindful of that and we will make sure that we are keeping you updated into the future. Um, that's something that's very, very important to us. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit real quick. One second. Hopefully that worked. Um, let's talk a little bit about the metaverse. Apologies. There was something happening in the metaverse. I had to handle it. Anyway, truth in advertising. You may have heard of them in the past. They're actually a really important organization that is all about promoting um, proper disclosure of assets and what like the promotion of those assets is actually doing. So like you're not just buying into things without being educated. So this organization just this past week put 17 different celebrities on blast for promoting NFTs and not disclosing how that directly affects their holdings. Really very interesting at the end of the day, um, if you ask me. But I personally think that there can be some real downside to this. And that's that if they choose to escalate, we could very easily end up seeing, I think it was, what was the right word? I think it was the FCC, or no, it was the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. They can get involved very quick on this. Uh, but how do you read the story? I'm really curious about your perspective on this one because it's it's different. It's not something we talk about a lot. It It is. I think what's challenging about the NFT space is as opposed to some other like businesses and companies where celebrities get involved and then, you know, the company flops. Typically, if you get involved, when a celebrity gets involved with a company, they get like equity or they get paid on the front end to like do a quick promo or whatever. But it takes like years to really like pan out and to 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 see it like collapse. With NFTs, if they're part of it, they yeah, they get like an initial kicker of like money. But then like if they're making money on like these NFTs being sold out and then some of the money that comes from the resale, and then all of a sudden it dumps. People who got in late end up losing a ton of money and the celebrities that were part of it make a ton of money. So like, uh, in that case, it's, it's kind of warranted and it sucks, but it, it, it's a very unique situation where a lot of celebrities, unfortunately, got a part of these, some NFT and crypto projects that ultimately busted and... If you're going to put your name on something, you need to know what you're signing up for. And I do think there has to be repercussions if you put your name on something that um, unfortunately goes sideways. And if it goes sideways and you benefit it from it, uh, that's if like if, if it goes sideways and you go down with it, then like, you know, it is what it is. Everyone lost on it. it it's unfortunate. But like where whether I feel like there has to be repercussions if if you come out on top and the majority of people don't. That's when I think, yeah, you might want to look into that. Yeah, I, I happen to agree with you, but I think I want to take the contrarian perspective for just a second. There's a part of me 
very small part of me that disagrees with this. Because I think that at the same time, like we up, we hold certain people in this world to a higher standard. And just because they're promoting or not even really promoting, they're talking about NFTs, it's seen as promotion, right? You've got Mark Cuban out there actively talking about Dogecoin and all these other specific projects that he's invested in. And I'm sorry, but people still take that as promotion, right? It's not, we say it's not financial advice, but realistically speaking, if you have that much clout, why are you not included in it? Why are you not one of the people that's being contacted by truth and advertising? I personally think that the real focus here that we need to crack down on is the celebrities that are directly abusing the system and rug pulling people across the board because they have influence. You know, I'm talking about the De'Aaron Foxes of the world, the Jake and Logan Pauls, those guys, and there are plenty of other examples, they are the ones that are damaging the space at large. They're the people that really need to be taken to task in terms of the TINA. Um, but again, I don't want to go too, too much further into it. I just hope that the people that really do end up being seen as rug pullers at the end of the day get their you know, justice because they do deserve to be you know, held to task and held accountable. The next story is probably my favorite story on the week. And again, it's because I typically like the NFT related stories a lot. Um, but it's because I personally get really charged up about the intellectual property debate that is seen across the space. So last week, Moonbirds made a massive announcement and said that they are officially going to move their collection to the CC0 copyright license, basically saying that anybody out there can use these assets to do whatever they want. It's an open and free use project as compared to what they had before that, which is the similar commercial rights model that Board Ape Yacht Club and Onchain Monkey and a bunch of the other big prominent projects use. This typically gives the brand a little bit more control over what it is that the holders can do with the intellectual property. This basically came out of nowhere. And it sparked a massive debate in the NFT community, especially because a lot of the Moonbirds um, holders were not very happy because they weren't consulted. Nobody in their community came to them and said, hey, we're thinking about going CC0. What do you think? The reason that's a really, really big deal is because once you go CC0, you cannot go back. That's officially public domain. So Richard, you and I both studied law to a degree in business. I'm very curious about what you think of this because it's a very interesting debate. Um, but which side do you find yourself falling on? Do you think these assets should be CC0 or should they have a specific, more specific tailored commercial rights license? It's interesting, man. Like it depends on the brand itself. Like who are you building this for? Is it truly for your company and you want a brand where, you know, you ultimately have your best uh, your, your end consumer's best interest at heart. You want to give them some freedom, but like you need to create like controlled and creative genius and directive. Or is it, hey, we created this really dope thing. We want the community to just go out and do what they want with it. It's, hey, here you go. It's yours. That's why I think it should be based on whatever your brand is. It needs to be a team decision, whether it's your internal team or whether it is your community. And I think you kind of have to put your stake in the ground on which side of the of the coin you want to be on. And then once you make that decision, then you need to involve 
whomever, whether it's, again, that's your internal team or community, to then vote on if you're going to be like, hey, we're set up this way. We're thinking about going this way. Here's why we think it makes sense to go this way. What do y'all think? And I think that's where Moonbirds messed up. Yeah, I think the, the lack of consideration for the community response is definitely where they messed up. Um, however, I think in the argument of going CC0 versus staying with commercial rights, weirdly, I find myself in the middle. Because if you ask a purist, they will tell you that you can't be in the middle. And I disagree. I think we've not yet seen many experiments where you have a limited CC0 license with specific protected classes. People don't understand that that's an option. It's something that needs to still be debated and like act actively developed by lawyers to, you know, really be upheld with the law as it relates to copyright and trademark laws in the United States and abroad. But I think that that honestly is going to be one of the best ways to play the NFT market forward. Um, but again, there's nothing wrong with commercial rights. There's nothing wrong with CC0. They're just vastly different strategies and they affect a brand in very different ways. But if you want to hear more about that in the future, we're happy to have an episode where we break that down or we can bring somebody onto the interviews to talk more about the actual legal debate between CC0 and commercial rights. But let's jump into the next story, which I think is going to have some pretty serious repercussions. Richard, last week, NVIDIA announced they're launching a toolkit specifically built for creating metaverse environments. Is this really how we're going to start seeing metaverses developed under an individual or a specified UI developer kit? Or are we going to start seeing people turn away from this and start going more open source? Man, it's way too early um, to put a line in the sand here. I think... And and for for those who are I guess more generally are familiar with like Web 2.0, uh, you have Meta who's creating their own environment. So uh, think of that as uh, in in encoding language. Let's say that they're building on iOS, and then we have um, another company like the Centraland, and they're building on Mana. So let's call that Android. And then you have these others that are building all these other platforms, and you know their interoperability, all these other nice flashy words. When you are building toolkits, you're basically becoming like WordPress. So if you don't necessarily know how to build your own website, but you go to WordPress or Wix, that's where these toolkits come into place. And now you can start kind of like, here's a template, build on said template. So it allows you to get started and move quickly, but it doesn't allow the creativeness to kind of go in a lot of different directions. It kind of boxes you into very specific ramifications on the environment that you're going to be building. So how do I ultimately feel about it? I think it opens the door to get more product out there and more different perspectives on all these different types of metaverse worlds. I don't know if it'll catch on this soon. That's where I'm at. How do you feel about it? I think that a lot of people don't want to use a specific kit. They want to use open source language when developing an open metaverse concept. If it's a company that's trying to build a closed metaverse concept like a meta, then yeah, maybe NVIDIA has the right product for them because ultimately it's going to give them a lot easier of a development pathway. Um, but I just, I see this being something that gets utilized by a lot of corporates. 
right? The, the bigger corporate entities, they want to develop metaverses, want to develop metaverse environments, but don't have the confidence to do it in an open way. They want to have control over their ecosystem. That's how I read it. Um, but I don't want to go too much further into it because I think that there's still a lot that needs to be released on this. We need to really read more into the specific details of what this toolkit actually does. And not a lot of it's out there. They've simply announced that they've launched the toolkit and more will be coming available in the coming weeks. So it's kind of like it's in a beta test or an open beta right now. And we're just still learning about what's very new in it. It's kind of like an iOS update, right? You know, it takes a little bit of time for the developers to really understand what the code base actually has in it and can disclose after the fact. So we'll keep you updated. We'll make sure that you're aware of it, but it's interesting nonetheless to see that it's happening. This next story, I think, is a lot of fun, and we're going to run through it really quickly because I think we've got one final story we want to bring to you this week that is, um, let's just say, a little bit important. Non-Fungible Films is an NFT project that rolled out across the last, I want to say, two months, and they sold their initial collection on the idea that basically they're going to start having more non-fungible assets that are out there in the world licensed and put into films. And on the flip side, they're going to bring more film IP into the NFT space. So they're kind of like a bridge between Hollywood and the metaverse. Great. They just actually did something that not a lot of people had a lot of faith in them that they were going to do. A lot of people were not sure how far they could really take it. They did it in a big way, and they are officially bringing National Lampoon's IP into Web3. Now, this is a huge deal. National Lampoon is behind Van Wilder. They're behind Animal House. They're behind all of the family vacation movies and a lot more content than that. So I'm really curious. Do you read this as big news? Because to me, I think that this is really, really interesting. And it says a lot for where we're headed in terms of like IP turnover into the metaverse. I think it is big news that, you know, National Lampoon is a, is a big brand. Uh, I think it's hilarious that that's who the first one that they they brought in um, for those who aren't familiar with National Lampoon movies, uh, do a quick Google search. Uh, but other than that, uh, I mean, they've like you said, they've come pretty far in a matter of months. It's been two months, and they already have this big brand. And if they have success with them, opens the floodgates to a bunch of others. So, um, I think this is pretty cool, and I'm I, I know I'm gonna keep following Unfungible Films. Yeah, I'm going to keep my eye on this one, um, but let's jump into the final story, which it almost feels like we talk about them every single time we have this metaverse segment, but this week it really is actually worth talking about. There are three really big headlines across last week in the Board API Club ecosystem, and we want to make sure that you're aware of all of them. First is a major brand, Major League Soccer, has officially signed a Board Ape as a digital athlete. What does it mean? What is the extent that this is going to be used? Who really knows? But it's very interesting that the MLS is starting to move in on the metaverse. They see 100% where we're headed and they are completely bought in and they want to be utilizing this IP to make games more exciting. That is undeniable. That's clearly where it's headed. But the next piece is a little bit bigger. And let's just say it's a, worth a lot more money. The trippy Mega Mutant Ape officially sold this past week for, count the zeros, 2300 Ethereum. Not $2,300, Ethereum. 
out of curiosity for those that are listening via the podcast, Richard, how much is that in U.S. dollars? It's about $4.3 million, Steve. You know, chump change. God, Dude, that's, that's ludicrous. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Mega Mutants. I think that it's probably the coolest part of the entire ecosystem, including Bored Ape. But man, $4.3 million. Like we saw Changing one of the, lives. We saw one of the um the barrels, the the M3 serums sell for like a thousand ETH. And that was what went into creating this specific mutant uh mega mutant ape. So that person who bought that thousand ETH barrel still sees a two a what a 2.3x on their investment. Like that's insane. Yeah. So very I mean, it, it's unheard of. It's absolutely in incredible. a quote unquote bear market. Yeah. In a bear market. Don't worry, guys. It's still bearish out there. We're in it. We're in a recession in the housing market, but plenty of other <laughs> assets are selling. Trust me. They're all selling. Um, people just don't want you to know it. So the final piece is probably the shocker of the three stories, right? You, it's like, it's almost like playing a weird game of like two truths and a lie, um, except all of these are true. And you think the third one's definitely a lie and it's not. So you're familiar with the hacking group Anonymous, right? Well, Very. that group has officially put Board API Club on notice because of some information that has been circulating out there and sparking larger debates as to some of the, uh, the trolling undertones and racial injection that is in the Board API Club traits. We told you a couple months ago when we covered that story and talked about, you know, what Ryder Rips and his team had found and had ultimately assembled into a pretty cohesive argument for the fact that, like, it's undeniable it's there um, and that you can only claim coincidence so far. Um, Anonymous got a hold of all that and they've done, they've already started doing some of their own diligence and they're digging into it. And they've concluded that like they need to put board ABI club on notice and all of the holders need to take notice of this as well. It's really, really not a good look in terms of what was already unearthed. But the fact that anonymous is now on their tail, it's even worse of a look. Richard in this weird game of two truths and a lie with the lie really looking bad and actually is still true. How do you respond to all of this board ape news? So I recently watched a docu series on Netflix called uh, "The Most Hated Man on the Internet." Um, pretty good one. If if you watch Netflix or have access to it, go, go check it out. Now, in this series, eventually, Anonymous gets involved, and they single handedly help shut down the website that this guy created. It just shows you how powerful Anonymous is. Anonymous is also responsible for a ton of other things. So not only are they like a legitimate group, and I know some people think they're like fake or all this other kind of stuff. Oh no, these people are real and they really shake stuff up and they get involved when things usually are really bad. So we can't stress how bad of a look this is that Anonymous has decided to look into this. Now, who knows? Maybe they'll do their uh, investigation and decide that they're in the clear. You know, that's best case scenario. But the fact that they even thought that they need to take time out of all the other things that they're researching to look into this, not a good look. Beyond it not being a good look and beyond the threat that it poses to the entire board ecosystem and the asset holders and even the company Yuga Labs behind the scenes, 
the biggest, most problematic piece of this is not that Anonymous is after them. For Board Ape customers and for Yuga Labs as a team, what I would be most concerned about is news and media getting a hold of the fact that Anonymous has officially taken you as a target. Because I guarantee you, the second that the media starts running with this story, the court of public opinion that is not in NFTs is going to take hold of this and they're not going to let go until there's blood in the water. It's going to be gross and it's going to get bad and it's going to shine a really bad light on the NFT space at large for a minute until we start having accountability in the space for some of the actions and the, and the choices that our project founders, you know, take. I think in this specific case, like the real question is always going to be how much is really coincidence and how much is intentional. And at what point can you say that, yeah, this can't all just be coincidental. We both have read through this site. They, documents all of their perspectives. I will say some of it's loose, but other pieces of it, like it's really undeniable. And even if they were trolling in the way that you see on 4chan and Reddit and trying to play this out as like a counterculture thing, it doesn't excuse it. Like it's still disgusting behavior. Like I don't care that you like (laughs) that you are trying to justify it at the end of the day. And they've not made that justification yet. They're going to. They're going to try at the very end of the day once the founders come out and try to justify their actions. But it's going to come out. I think Anonymous is definitely going to be after them for a while. They're going to track down some really sensitive information that's not even public yet. Um, But to those people that are constantly taking the Board API Club side, um, I would definitely ask some questions because they don't typically run with you know, an accusation or a targeting statement like they did in that YouTube video, unless there's actually something there. So we'll keep you posted at home on this one, but it's definitely a sensitive topic. It's a sensitive story and there's a lot more to be heard from it, right? This is not even close to done. There's a lot that's going to come from this still. And at the same time, don't think for a second that that's a fake account. It's very much so the real anonymous YouTube account. You can check it. You can back check it again. There are two, there are two anonymous YouTube channels. They're both legit. Um, it just, it's really, really interesting. But that's going to wrap up this week's Aftershock. Richard, out of all the stories this week, where do you find most of your attention? Um, the the headliner that we started with, the Zero D, uh, however you pronounce that, uh, test net that's going live and the fact that Vitalik came out and said that everything should go live by September 15th. That is huge news. Um, as we get closer to that date, like I think we potentially could see even more bullishness. And if everything goes off without a hitch, it could be the slingshot to get us out of this, uh, let's call it short-term bear market. I hope. Fingers crossed. That's best case scenario. We can still see some more pain, but I'm hopeful that it causes so much hype and excitement, et cetera, that it just keeps catapulting everything forward. So how about you? What are you, what are you taking away as the biggest? Dude, I'm really, I'm really focused on this IP debate. I think that the CC0 versus commercial rights licensing debate is fascinating. And it's ultimately going to determine a lot of the future of NFTs and how they're utilized and what permission the end user gets for buying an NFT. Um, 
I'm excited by it, honestly, because I think it opens up a lot of doors. I think there's a lot of potential from it. But that's going to wrap up this week's Aftershock. We really appreciate you being here. If you liked any of our stories tonight and you really want to make sure that you chime it out in in the comments, you can feel free to leave a review on any of your favorite podcast platforms, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. And you can, of course, comment on YouTube where we read and respond to every single comment. Um, If you have any thoughts or corrections that we need to make on any of these stories that we've covered today, again, feel free to let us know. We want to make sure that we keep things as accurate as we possibly can on here. Um, But we also have a ton of other great content over at crypto-current.co. And lastly, you can catch all of our interview series here on Cryptocurrency YouTube every Monday. Those are interviews that are going to be coming from plenty of different thought leaders from across the space to keep you informed and connected to what's going on in Web3. Richard, who did you have on the show this past week? So we had um, Onraise Weeks, who is with um, Neo Nomad. They're making DeFi easy for everyone, and they have some really cool tools in place uh, to give you a little bit more access in, in, in ways to use decentralized finance, whether that's having assets that are backed by actual physical gold or whether that's having access to uh, lending protocols and et cetera. So really good conversation and uh, recommend you go and check it out. Yep. It's a pretty slick multi-chain effort. Um, definitely worth taking a look at. But to those of you at home that have spent the time with us today, make sure that you leave a like on um, YouTube. We'd appreciate it. And of course, we will be back next week with another edition of the Aftershock. But until then, we hope that you are staying educated, staying connected, and that you will, of course, stay Cryptocurrent. Catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cryptocurrent. Cryptocurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the Cryptocurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. This show and any other cryptocurrent production is exclusively for informational purposes. 